the past few few weeks, really uh, longer than that, we we've been wading, as you know, through the Gospel of Mark, and we've gone through all of these uh, different parables where we've heard from Jesus what the the kingdom of God is like, and we get to one of these final ones before we enter into a more particular narratival movement in the gospel. Jesus turns to uh, his true mission and task, which is the cross. But we've we've heard all all kinds of stuff about the the kingdom. Jesus says it's like a vineyard. He says it's like a, a wedding banquet or an estate. And even with all of these very tangible metaphors, I think that that phrase for us, the kingdom of God, can often be nearly incapacitated by abstractions. The kingdom of God can mean something like an ethical awareness to some, or developing an attitude of of goodwill, or maybe it can mean living with a greater sense of intentionality or just being a better people. But the kingdom of God that we've seen Jesus talk about is something very different. And that's in part what we saw in that Old Testament reading with all of the names that we couldn't pronounce. God chooses to use people with names and locations that are known. It's important. The kingdom of God is this dynamic movement established by God that doesn't hover over the world, some kind of platonic dream. It also is not reduced to the world, but it is like, exactly like the one who is established by Jesus the Son in the world, not of it, existing through time into the details of our lives, in the bodies of Christians gathered in buildings just like this one. And it will be made manifest, the kingdom, when the master comes again. Remember, this kingdom is given, and this kingdom is coming, and we're all involved in it. And the parables are clear here. It's vine dressers and tenants and slaves and bridesmaids. This kingdom is, of course, the church. It's us. It's me and you and all of your sisters and brothers who are baptized into the body of Christ. There is nothing abstract about the person sitting next to you in the pew. And likewise, there's nothing abstract about the kingdom of God. And in the same way that there's nothing abstract about this kingdom, there is also very little abstract about our vision or our mission, our vocation. And in our readings today, if we collect them together, I think we we see that we're given two things. We're given first gifts, and we're given second time. Gifts and time. Jesus' parable that we just heard Richard read describes how uh, all of these master's servants, they receive some portion of the master's resources. I'd like to call these gifts. The word used there is is talents, which is a monetary unit, or really it's a weight of of measure for a monetary unit. But I think that the the main thrust here is that these, these are gifts. These talents are gifts, resources that are given to us. And then our psalm describes how we're all given time. We're given this expenditure of moments here on this earth in light of God's own purposes, and we're given an opportunity, verse says, the last beautiful line that they sung, to number our days. Again, nothing abstract about this. You all have come to receive gifts, human resources, that you didn't earn or you didn't buy, but that you nonetheless have. 
And I know many of you in here, some of you are great planners, some of you are caregivers, there are creatives in here, there are intellectuals and engineers and all sundry kinds of giftings. And all of these proclivities and resources, they're of course not of your own doing, are they? Have you ever thought, for instance, about that simple fact that no one chooses what IQ they have, what they look like, what genetic makeup they have, or even what family they're born into. And even, I think, parts of our own emotional dispositions aren't chosen by us. My mom is just a joyful lady. I have no clue how she's so joyful. She just is. She didn't choose it. She was built that way by her maker. And so our resources, they are a gift, and they're not ultimately ours. And then likewise, time. We're given time, this number of days in the world, our own lives. And this is also something that we didn't choose. I know this is obvious, but bear with me. Time, I think, is a kind of unmerited grace. And to steward this time is, I think, a deep and distinct calling within the kingdom of God. For instance, Christians generations ago would pray that they didn't die unexpectedly. If you've ever been here on a holy day, you'll remember that we read this thing called the Great Litany. It's a famous prayer that Thomas Cranmer Cranmer wrote uh, centuries ago. And in it, there is a prayer that we all would not die unexpectedly. Why do they pray that? Because they want to use God's time wisely. We pray that because we want to live our lives faithfully to the end. We want to number our days. And so I think the question for us that both the psalm and the parable pose together is how are we going to use these gifts, these resources, and this time for the kingdom of God? How will you use the gifts you've been given? How will St. George's use our resources for the kingdom? And I think first we have to be absolutely honest and look at the parable for what it is. The parable describes a master who goes away and gives his financial resources to servants with the hope that, of course, they'll they'll make more. But that money, of course, it isn't theirs. And likewise, the gifts that we are given, because they are God's, they have to be used in light of his own desires. And so I have to ask you, what would it actually be like to use your gifts or your resources as if they're God's? As I try to imagine this, I think, you know, you, you you wouldn't brag about or be prideful of these gifts because they're not yours. But also you wouldn't ignore them or be falsely humble about them because they are given to you. They're given to you in a gracious sense of charity. But again, they're not yours and you didn't determine them. I, for one, however, am often tempted either to one, claim that what's been given to me is my own achievement, look at what I did, or second, to compare what I've been given to other people which, of course, just makes you grow envious, wish you had other people's talents or gifts or resources. But if you could, if we could use these resources in light of their being God's own, wouldn't it feel amazing, I think? I think it would feel like freedom because you'd be able to enjoy the gifts that God has given others. You would also be free to never have to defend your own because it's given by God. And the point is the master gives what he chooses. The parable says it clear enough. Some get one talent, some get five. All are given a gift and all 
are made, of course, in the master's images. And so we all have resources, but as soon as we take them as our own, none of it actually matters. I once heard a mentor preach that Christians, they're not actually special people. They just know what their lives are for. I think that's absolutely right. We know what our lives, we know what our gifts, we know what our resources are for. They're God's and we shepherd them with seriousness, urgency, freedom, and for the sake of others. Now before moving on, I think there's another side to this that's worth exploring. Even though our our lives, our, our gifts and resources deserve our full stewardly attention, maybe even greater attention because they're not our own, God has made us finite. Finitude, no matter how much we hate it, and often we do, it is not a sin. Again, Psalm 90 says this clear enough. God is everlasting, but man returns to dust. The point here is we are finite. We're made with limitations. And that's actually at the heart of what it means to be God's own. I often personally find it strange that our culture has, well, it struggles to to, to come up with some working definition of, of sin. And yet it's strange that we all feel this deep guilt about anything that looks like limitation or rest, don't we? I do. There's this constant pressure to always be available or to always be working or to never be delayed or never let your body, your illness or whatever it is get in the way. And we feel, some of us feel shame about that. But in God's infinite wisdom, infinite wisdom, he's made us finite. Infinitude is no sin. Our faithful use of God's gifts does not require us to transcend our own finitude. And I personally think that people desperately need to hear that from the church. Humans are certainly sinners. God certainly forgives sins. But our own finitude, it is not a sin. It's how God made you. God made you that way. And he intends for you to use his resources precisely in light of how he's made you. As a finite human being. So there should be times that you exhaust yourself for the kingdom of God. That we work with urgency and and desire and ferocious energy And there should also be times where we simply go to sleep, where we rest. We recognize that we are not God. Teach us, O Lord, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Finally, we're called, I think, to use the resources we've been given in light of God's own character. I don't know if you noticed, but but there are three servants, right, in the parable. The final one is given one talent. And he's rebuked. Do you you remember why he's rebuked? It's because he buries his talent. He buries the money. He doesn't use it and he wastes that opportunity. And the reason that he buries it again, if you read carefully, is because it says he was afraid. He replies to the master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you do not sow, gathering where you do not scatter seed, And so I was afraid. And the servant, from what I can tell, is perhaps right about one aspect of the kingdom of God. God the Father does, in a way, gather where he doesn't sow. He has sent us out into the world to reap what we've not planted. 
but that is generated out of God's own kingdom moving in and through the world. But what this servant gets dead wrong is his fear. The fear is where he gets wrong. Fear of the master and perhaps fearfulness about using the gifts that he's been entrusted with. And I think that's one of the reasons the Bible is so clear about the imperative to not be afraid. You know how many times the Bible says to not be afraid in some form or another? It's a remarkable number. It's 365. I didn't make that up. That's true. It's 365. One for each day of the year. Don't be afraid. And the one major calling that we have to steward the resources that God has given us, to use those resources, the one mistake we make is to fear. Fear both what could happen if we use these resources and also fear of the giver. But if you know the giver, and I do, some of you do, we know that he's given us himself, all of himself. Not an abstraction, but his own son, a person. And he's given us his blood. And so the resources that you and I hold on to, they are a great, wonderful gift. But they are only whatever they are because of the life of the giver, God the Father. And I realize we have all kinds of things going on at St. George's right now. There are transitions There's a pandemic, I mean, you name it, there are all kinds of things this day going on at St. George's, and I know that that's true in your own lives as well. And in my experience, the great temptation in moments like this is to cling, to bury, to hide, to be afraid. But we have no reason to be afraid because, again, we have one who has given us himself, who has even given us a deposit in the Spirit, And he has promised that he will be with us to the end of the age. So to each of you, I challenge you, come in the church going home, if you are tempted to be afraid, to hoard whatever resources you have or to hide those, remember the one who has given himself. So beginning this week, let us use the resources, the time that God has given us for his purposes Let us remember our own finitude and let us give exhaustively, freely, in light of the giver who loves us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.